Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for joining us on Triple R. We've got an hour of science for you now, and we're going to jump straight into it today. I'm actually solo in the studio today. All my team members are off having fun doing something else, so it's just me. But I have a range of guests coming into the studio. We're going to be talking about chemical stuff. We're going to be talking about healthcare and uh, all the great things happening there. And we're going to be talking about autism a little bit later in the show, and then we'll finish finish up with some really cool stuff that NASA are doing. Of course, uh, you know, I'm obsessed with that, so we always get to that sooner or later. But on the line with me now, all the way from, oh, I think it's Canberra, it's a long way away, is Professor Tim Sendon. He's the Director of the Research School of Physical Sciences at the Australian National University. Good morning, Tim. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. Lovely to see you again. Now, uh, I think I was about 15 years ago that I last saw you. It's been a while. That would be about right. You haven't changed. Oh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I should say the same back. Uh, I think we've both lost a bit of hair. I think it's fair to say we've uh, maybe, thinned maybe. out a little bit. Now, of course, I remember, you know, just to give people a picture of how we know each other, because you, you won the award, which a big award, which I'm going to get to. But um, I remember the days when I was still doing research and someone said to me, you've got to go up and work with this Tim Sendon guy. He's a physical chemist. And as a physics guy, I was like, physical chemist? Oh, really? Is that... I mean, it was. Do, do people normally approach you with that kind of attitude when you tell them you're a physical chemist? Are they are they worried? Uh, a, a little sometimes. I mean, it's it sounds like like you're having a bet both ways. Really, um, couldn't you know? And probably looking at my undergraduate uh, record, you know, I probably couldn't cut it as a physicist, but probably just make the grade as a chemist. And so I sort of sat both ways. So. Um, yeah, no, look, it's it's it's, easy, it's a topic that's easy to explain once you get into it because you can talk about the the forces that act between molecules and people have mm. a concept of that. And then you can talk about how they manifest themselves in in terms of adhesion and why sticky tape sticks and why paint uh, forms a film on the wall and, and, and you know, and there's a, a suite of things that become very commonplace uh, very quickly once you start talking about physical chemistry. Yeah. It, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think often people have this view of, of chemistry and they often haven't heard the term physical chemistry and have this a view of chemistry being, you know, I, I don't know, almost like a uh, in, in test tubes and buckets type of science. But the, the sort of stuff you do is, is very different. I mean, when we talk about individual forces between molecules and atoms and so forth, this is a whole different range, isn't it? I mean, I mean things operate differently on that scale. Indeed, and 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 all the um, abilities that you know that the the, the uh, insight that we get from um, general microscopy starts to be pushed aside, and we start to think about force fields and things that uh, act at a distance. And and you know one of the classic ubiquitous forces is the hydrogen bond. You know the the uh, bond, the association between um, water molecules and and protein and all the things that make us up. Um, you know, those tiny, tiny forces act in concert. And uh, as an ensemble, you see all sorts of uh, grand architectures uh, assembled, you know, from, you know, the, the human form all the way down through cellular architecture and so on. And, and largely that distills down to the nature of a single bond, which is a hydrogen bond. Um, 
And so the instrument that we, we first uh, uh, talked around, the yeah. atomic force microscope, is, is one of the few instruments that allows you to, to measure that uh, realm, you know, that, that force realm, and actually to feel the, uh, the force around molecules. You know, um, rather than seeing a surface, you feel the surface and you feel it on the scale of nanonewtons and, and way below that too. So tiny, tiny forces. How, how do those forces compare to other forces that people sort of know well? Like, I mean, I, I have a bit of a, a feeling for the force of gravity because, you know, when I get up in the morning, it you know, often doesn't, doesn't agree with me. Um, we, we know sort of the sort of magnetic forces. You know, if you just put a magnet on your fridge, you, get, you have a feeling for, for how strong that can be. I mean, what, what are these forces like by comparison? Yeah, I, I, there's t- two ways to introduce this, but I'll start with a very uh, human scale uh, analogy. So, you know, using, uh, everyone can imagine picking up an apple and holding it against gravity, you know, and that's about 100 grams, so that's about a newton worth mm-hmm. of force. Uh, nice uh, that it should be an apple, I guess. Um, and if you go down three orders of magnitude to a millinewton, then it's about the uh, force required to hold um, a postage stamp against gravity, whatever a postage stamp is these days, but that, that's a sort of scale. Then you can go down to a micronewton, and that's a speck of dust against gravity, and then a nanonewton, which is um, a billionth of a newton, so a billionth of an apple, if you like, um, they're the forces that sort of keep atoms together. That, that's the force required to break a chemical bond. Um, and so if you could get tiny little tweezers and pull two carbon atoms apart, then you'd, you'd be exerting around about a, a, a nanonewton, a billionth of an atom, apple, if you like. Yeah. And then below that are the forces that really manifest themselves that, you know, coordinate and create protein structures and um, cell membranes and all these sorts of things. And and that they work for two reasons. They work because there is actually a force, uh, can be attractive or repulsive between these molecules. But also when they start to order themselves, then the forces can amplify, you know, and you can get a magnification of those con- um, concerted uh, forces between the molecules. And, and then you can get grander architectures being um, derived and you can steer... Um, you know, the nanofabrication of um, solid materials like uh, nanoparticles and all sorts of things. So, But it all comes down to that that rather weak but uh, ever-present force between um, uh, molecular systems. Um, mm. So, Yeah, interesting. Now, I think most of our listeners are very aware of the use of X-rays, medical X-rays. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of uses we see. You know, uh, we go from, you know, the the simplest sort of I guess blanketing X-ray you'll get when someone does a, a chest X-ray, which is very large use of, of X-rays in a very broad sense. To you, know, you might be doing something a bit more detailed, like a dental X-ray, which is a fairly small beam of of X-rays that is used to take a take an image of of your teeth. But you work in the space of what what's called micro tomography. Um, which is a very different use of X-rays. T- talk us through that. Yeah. Okay. So, so the, the, the technique is very familiar to people. Anyone who's had a, um, as you say, an X-ray scan will know what a radiograph is. So uh, it's a way of taking an X-ray picture of your internal structures. Um, and then some people have had um, CT scans or CAT scans where. Basically, they take a lot of photos as the uh, instrument revolves around the body. And then mathematically, computationally, you can reconstruct 
a three-dimensional perspective of that um, body as if it was transparent. Um, and so microtomography is the same sort of principle where we're uh, looking at very small scale things, uh, typically from about a micron. So, um, you know, uh, a human hair is about 100 microns, so about a hundredth the diameter of a human hair. That's a sort of um, limiting resolution for many micro CTs. And then up, and, and some of the bigger structures we look at can be human scale, but we're, we're still getting microscopic information on opaque objects. So it's it's really a microscopic technique that works in 3D on opaque objects. Yeah, interesting stuff. Now, Tim, you work up there in the, you know, you're, you're director of the Research School of Physical Sciences. You know, it's obviously one of the, the sort of very successful sensors of its type um, in Australia. It's been around for a long time. It's a bit of a unique beast, I think, in terms of universities, what the, the research centres at ANU have been like over the years. What what are you what are your feelings at the moment with regards to the funding scenario? Because you know, in in a sense, you're a, you're a fundamental researcher, but you've also had a lot of interaction with the industry and so forth. I mean, where where are we sitting in that space, and is it as bad as as we're hearing? <laughs> no, it's, a, a crisis is always a great opportunity, isn't it, Shane? Yeah. Uh, look, I, I think um, where we sit now, it is uh, we're in. No, hiatus. It's it's true, um, and I think to some extent we just have to stick to our guns as researchers. And and, and I use the um, uh, two to one principle that you should spend about twice as much effort into the fund looking at the fundamentals as you do in the applied or translational space. Um, and, and so I think that's a fairly good rule of thumb if you're an individual or <laughs> institution. Um, but, you know, I think where we come to funding at the moment, yes, the government's obviously trying to look at uh, stimulating. Uh, we're in a recovery mode and a stimulus package revolves around that translational aspect. But I think it would be to our great loss as a nation if we forget the fundamentals. Mm. Um, yeah. It's always um, occurred to me that, you know, these are essentially funding on two different timescales. You know, when you when you fund translation, it's a very short time scale with short returns, which you know is something that, to be fair, you know, short term governments often often like. Whereas funding the fundamentals is a longer term strategy, where you know we we will have the results of that being translated in ten, twenty, maybe fifty years. Or is that is that the way you see that? No, no. In fact, I, I think the benefits of fundamental um, research um, are manifest much much sooner, hmm. and 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 that's you see that in education. True. Um, you know, the, the really great educators, the people understand their, their topics at a fundamental level. Mm. And so, yeah, education is the very first immediate benefit that the nation sees economically. Um, I, I think the other thing to say about translation is that it's not just um, commercialisation. Commercialisation is a tiny part of um, translation. And, and what you generally see is transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary research. And, and that is um, translation. Uh, and you need to have that probably is a prerequisite before commercialization can happen in, in many cases you know obviously designing an instrument like the ct that we designed um that was a direct translation but most often you're looking at um uh, that interdisciplinary transdisciplinary uh, discussion that builds uh, a rapport that a researcher will have for a new, a new field and and that's that's where the the real advances happen in my view yeah indeed and i think i mean you're very you're very on the money there of the commercialization aspect too because it's a very field specific thing too there are a lot of fields of research that don't lend themselves to that type of approach and and that's not actually how they end up being of value to society in the short or the long term so if we pop everything in that bucket a lot of areas are just going to come up short 
That's right. No, entirely right. And and from a university perspective, and that's why I say there's there's great opportunities because actually commercialization. The universities benefit not from the commercial return, you know, the sale of the company. That, you know, that happens occasionally and that's lovely, a good press release. But where you really benefit is, again, that building that relationship with a company. You get sponsored research. Um, you, you show career paths for, uh, you know, researchers, young and old. Um, mm. and you create an ecosystem. And that, that's far, far more valuable for you, the university sector than you know, sent, uh, spinning off a company and selling it to uh, a bunch of investors. Yeah. Now, Tim, a couple of things before I let you go. First of all, one of the things you apparently enjoy is looking for fossils in Antarctica. What is going on there? I don't remember this about you. Where, where have you been frolicking for fossils in Antarctica? I've had the great pleasure of working with very many talented people. And and as you know, you know, microscopy gets you uh, through the door and, and gets you collaborating with a lot of different people, depending mm. on what sort of microscope it is. But, you know, generally you get to meet a lot of people. And I I basically got in the company of some great paleontologists and uh, managed to get myself to remote parts of the world. And Antarctica was one of them. Uh, really wonderful wonderful trip yeah fantastic now the australian academy of science of course has bestowed a very particular award upon you tell us about the award and and also about the the upcoming round that will be uh, available soon Okay, thank, thanks, Shane. Um, so the ward was the uh, is named after Ian Walk, um, the founder of um, industrial chemistry in, in CSIRO, and and really uh, one of the great Australians who's illustrated how the fundamentals can be translated across different disciplines. So he did a lot of um, uh, pivotal work around froth flotation, which is one of our big mineral extraction techniques in Australia. Uh, he didn't invent it, but he, he really refined it and made it uh, uh, very significant. So, he, you know, his award really signifies that ability to to think beyond your degree, uh, your discipline, and and work with others in in a productive way, and mm. and, and and usually for the benefit of Australia. Um, so yeah, so I'm look, I'm really chuffed to have this award. It's it's really a huge honour. Um, and and I, I think probably an award that a great number of people in Australia might uh, hopefully receive. Um, so on that note, I, look, the awards are now open. Uh, they close uh, on May 1st. And so if you go to the uh, Academy of Science website, um, uh, science.org.au, um, people should have a look at the range of awards. But the Ian Walk is certainly one for those who love to translate. Well, Tim, it's been great chatting to you again. Hopefully we will speak again before, uh, you know, we lose the rest of our hair and 15 years passes. Um, <laughs> next time I'm up there at ANU, I'll drop by. But uh, congratulations on this award. I mean, I've, known, I've watched your career and, you know, we've worked together a little bit here and there over, you know, several decades. And it's great to see you doing so well. And I can't think of anyone as a better director of the research school up there. So congratulations. Thanks for your time today you, and, and good luck with the ongoing work. We'll, we'll speak soon. We'll see you soon. Sounds Thanks, good. Jane. Folks, right. that was Professor Tim Senden, the Director of the Research School of Physical Sciences at the Australian National University. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. It is three triple R. We're about twenty minutes through the show, and on the line with me now is Dr. Mary Darm. Mary is she's been on the show before. She's a senior research fellow at the Institute for Communication in Healthcare, at, also at the Australian University. Seem to be getting all these ANU guests today. Welcome back, Mary. 
Thanks for having me, Jane. It's good to have you on. Now, you work in this area that, I mean, I find this fascinating because I have a lot of fascination with healthcare and how healthcare works and operates. And unfortunately, every now and then I have to use healthcare. (laughs) Usually, Does anyone like using, well, I guess there's parts of healthcare that we like using, but there's parts where we wish we we didn't get sort of drawn into it because usually it's not, not a good thing. But couple that with communication and all of a sudden, you know, it sort of piques my interest because this is something that I, you know, live and breathe and love and do a lot of and do a lot of training in. Tell us just first of all a little bit about the the institute up there. Um, how long has it been around? How big is it? You know, what does it do? So it's a relatively small institute. It's been around for four years now. Um, and what we do is, um, like your previous guests Uh, We do interdisciplinary translational research. So that means we often work with healthcare professionals and clinicians um, in targeting particular problems that they have, particular about communications or problems that we know that exist, for example. Um, Bedside handover is a huge problem in terms of how it's implemented um, at bedsides. So what we do is we go in, we interview the people that work in hospitals, um, in particular wards, we talk to the patients there as well, and then we record um, interactions. Because basically, oftentimes, as you will would have found out, what people say they do or what people are told to do by policies is often not what they actually do. Um, so we really combine these two types of, of data that we collect, so the interviews and the actual interactions to see what is happening and how can we make a change and, and sort of do translational research from finding out what happens on a communication level interpersonally, finding out what happens on a systems or policy level, and then combining that to train or change um, organizationally how, how things are managed in healthcare. Yeah, one of my areas of research was quantum physics, and I can't help but think there's a bit of a Schrodinger's cat problem here. In that, when you start observing <laughs> this situation, do you have an impact on on what's happening? Because I can imagine, you know, certain clinicians would act a bit differently when they they feel as though a professional, in particular, is observing their yeah. their techniques and the way they go about their business. Do, do do you find that, and how do you correct for that? Yeah, I mean, the whole like Hawthorne effect, we call it. Um, comes from like a really old study where they um, looked at workers in a factory and and oftentimes you'd be surprised people forget really really quickly Mm. that they're being recorded and because it's sort of their natural environment they might mitigate at the start a bit um, and change what they do but as soon as they slip into their usual behaviors and around people that they're usually around of that that sort of gets gets forgotten pretty quickly and what we also try to do is we we try to get their and don't start running in terms of, the, of collecting data. Like we hang around, we we watch, we sort of become the fly on the wall type thing to actually see, well, what do they do when they think they're not really being observed? Mm. Um, and it really also tells us when someone sort of does something out of the ordinary. And sometimes people do that and they're like these weird sort of comments that they make, or, oh, look, they're here. We, we better do it the way that we're actually supposed to. And that's even telling in itself, like as, as collect, data collection goes. So it's not necessarily um, a bad thing if, if they op- openly sort of talk about things like that. So, so one of the things I suspect as consumers most people are not aware of is how prescriptive some of that uh, that is in terms of training. So the way in which a a doctor is supposed to speak to a patient, uh, what sort of language they're supposed to use. I mean, how how prescribed is that? 
and how much of that gets through to reality so the overriding yeah, that, i guess just personal style yeah i think in terms of you can't really i wouldn't really call it as as prescribed like they have their set way of talking and they really sort of become socialized into them when they start training so if you if you you would have all heard these terms that they use that are sort of my my pet hates um in like medical records patient complaints of Mm. Patient denied X. Patient's the poor historian. This is just how they've been written for years and years. And and when you come up as a medical student, that's what you see is written, and that's what you will sort of adopt. So unless there's sort of some internal change across the entire field happening, where they change and they sort of said um, patients didn't want painkillers, or they said patient um, says they have this symptom rather than say complains of. Um, other, if, if they don't change that um, on a broader level, it, it might not ever change. But I wouldn't say it as much as there is a prescription as, mm. as you have to do it that way. So there's people that do it differently and they're really good role models. But on the whole, um, I think most people sort of still, because they have been socialized that way, still yeah. talk that way or write that way. Interesting. So, um, and what is the effect of that? So, if if I have a, a clinician write down, you know, Shane complains of versus Shane has reported that, or, or a different type of language. Yeah. I'm not sure what that language should be. What what is the impact yes. of that in terms of clinical care? Do we do we see that? Yeah, there's there's actually so if you look at it, the the sort of stigma that you can create with the way that you talk about the patient. So you labeling them in a sense because if you like talked about as. Um, denying something or whether you refuse treatment rather mm. than you you can't really deal with it at that at that moment and and there've actually been studies about that so where people looked at um when you have in a patient's record and you talk about patients refusing treatments or hanging out with their friends at, at Donald's when they first had symptoms rather than sort of spending an afternoon with their friends um and and it really has um impact on on care so if you use that type of stigmatizing language sort of other clinicians that read these medical notes they have um often sort of more negative attitudes towards the patients then and depending on on what the treatment might be there might also be less um forthcoming or aggressive in treatment like if someone comes in pain and you use stigmatizing language to talk about them um, they might be less likely to actually get help or the help that they need. So it really does have a huge impact in terms of quality of care and, and patient safety as well. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I suppose many of us would love to think of the idea that this is, a, you know, healthcare in a way is a science. It's, you know, you roll out science a certain way. And you, and, and as yeah. with all sciences, of course, we have to remind ourselves that the, the impact they have on the world depends very much on communication and the individuals involved and the societal yes context involved and you you can't just roll it out like it's some copy of an encyclopedia it's just going to be taken verbatim in terms of things like diagnostics though i mean i know a lot of your work and this is where we we sort of got to having this interview again or not again but you know a new interview with you is around the number of diagnostic errors due to communication and so forth and what that means how big a problem is that in australia and what does that look like 
Um, it's quite a big problem. So if you overall sort of it's sort of estimated that each and every one of us will have a diagnostic error once in their lifetime. And that can be relatively minor or it can be really sort of have serious harm or, or lead to death. So it's sort of estimated in Australia that there's about every year about 20, 21,000 patients that are harmed by a diagnostic error mm-hmm. and up to 4,000 patients that actually die. And it's if you look at it from sort of an insurance perspective, and when I say insurance, I mean sort of malpractice insurance that doctors often have, it's about the second most common reason that doctors get complaints is because of diagnostic errors. And it's about 80% of diagnostic error that actually have a miscommunication component. So mm. it's quite, quite substantial and there's not a lot of, of work actually done in this space. So it's very prominent and it's probably causing a lot more harm and also financially um, um, being really important there than, than other medical errors. But it hasn't really gotten sort of the attention that it needs in Australia. Yeah, fascinating. Now, you're, you're, a, you're an expert in communications and, and this space. So when you, when you look at this number like 4,000 or the 21,000 in terms of um, areas of harm, are there consistencies that you see in terms of you know what we've been talking about in terms of language use and style and so forth and the way in which those clinicians are interacting with the patients during the diagnostic phase that sort of would be a red flag and say actually those those particular yeah. behaviours are problematic? So like I said, seriously, like no one has really looked at this yet. Mm. So they know that about 80% is is caused by communication. But what they most often looked at in, in that space is sort of what, what I call organizational communication. So they're, they're looking at sort of systems communication, how are test results communicated internally and and how, how does the organization work in terms of communicating results or diagnosis from one end to the other. But they haven't really looked at sort of the interpersonal level. So how do doctors and patients relate to each other um, and communicate to each other in, in sort of trying to get to a diagnosis. So what we've done, and that's the other really hard thing about this research space, is that if you want to record an interaction, um, you never know if that's going to end in a diagnostic error or not. So it's really hard to do prospectively. Mm. So what what we've done in, in sort of its first study is we've we've done role plays. So we've looked at role plays where... 16 doctors um, had all the same patient played by, by a role player and they, it had a set diagnosis at the end. So you knew if they were right or wrong, which is, is sort of the way that these role plays are often set up. And then we looked at, and, and luckily in the case that in the role play that we looked at, they were right split in half. So 50% got it right, 50% got it wrong. Um, and we looked at how did their language differ or how did what they did in, in talking to the patient differ. And what we found that was really striking is that um, the most exciting finding really was that the ones that got the diagnosis correct, they actually spent longer talking to the patient at the start. So they took longer time to actually take a history. And, and that basically gives them more information, more um, input into their diagnostic reasoning and that might have an impact on actually getting the diagnosis right. Mm. I, I mean, I promised you we wouldn't talk a lot about funding, but in terms of especially with G, <laughs> GP consults, you know, one of the 
issues has been that that time seems to be getting shorter and shorter yeah. and shorter. And presumably, it's interesting how that's done on, on the basis of cost. But from what you're saying, it sounds yeah. like actually it will end up costing us a lot more as a result of these yeah. sorts of errors. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a bit of a, like, I, I get this bind for clinicians, like, less and less resources, and especially with COVID, like, if colleagues um, have to isolate or stay homesick, and they might have to take on more patients. Um, but it's, it's sort of been for years and decades, this sort of misconception that working in a patient-centered way, so spending more time and really listening, takes more time, mm. because it doesn't necessarily do that. Um, I don't know, people have probably heard, or maybe not, um, if you're not in health communication, excuse me for assuming what people have heard or not, but there's this like number that's floating around, like how long patients get to speak before they're first interrupted. And in 1984, that was 18 seconds. And 2019, apparently it was 11 seconds. So if you want to sort of time how long that takes before you're first interrupted, that's, that, that seems insane. And there are also other studies that looked at, well, how long would a patient actually sort of talk and self-limit and stop and sort of say, well, this is what's wrong, this is what's wrong, doctor, what do you think it is? And usually on average, they'd only speak about a minute and a half. Mm. And everything they said doctors felt was important to the case. So you can see it, it doesn't necessarily have to take that long. And the other thing is patient-centered sort of communication strategies they also don't only evolve around listening there are also things like setting an agenda early on so that you avoid this phenomenon of oh oh, by the way that that patients often have when they sort of had their first complaint treated and a doctor thinks oh we're ready and then to go and and buy and then the patient says oh by the way and they're almost half off the door and they actually start telling you about why i'm really there so if you start setting an agenda early on you you can sort of reverse that type of outdoor phenomenon and then really sort of get talking and listening to them. So that that's that's sort of a thing that I think some some clinicians or within the constraints that they have really can try try to do. Yeah. Well, Mary, who would have thought the solution is listening to people, you know, to yeah, these problems? Right. Um, <laughs> I think it's good advice. Anyway, look, thanks so much for uh, for chatting to us again today. And I think every single person to this uh, listening to this show right now, next time they go to their GP, is going to time how long they get to speak before yeah. they're interrupted. And if they don't get their full 11 seconds, they're going to be upset. So yes. I, I think um, this, is, this is important for us to be very aware of this. And I think the more we expose the what I call the sort of constructs of communication so that people can see what's happening and then start correcting that behavior and realizing that correction actually in the end saves them time. It doesn't lose them time. It actually saves them time in the end, saves them money, and everyone gets better outcomes. But you do have to deconstruct the communication in ways for people to be able to see it and observe it. And I think – yeah. It's this – idea of really raising awareness if you don't know you can't really change Mm. but making people aware of of what is what it is really in in terms of how they communicate that can create barriers or break down barriers then then they can really sort of move on and and improve and everyone has to play a part clinicians have to go beyond the 11 seconds uh 
patience, if you're talking for 10 minutes before interrupted, there's a problem there too, yes. I suspect. So everyone's involved. Mary, good luck uh, with this ongoing work. It's, it's great you guys are doing it. Yeah. I realize it's, I mean, that number of 4,000 is enormous. I mean, it's much, you know, yes. you compare that to the road toll and so forth. It's an enormous number. So yeah. it's an important area. I hope you guys get the support you need. And we see more institutes yeah. of health and communication around the country sooner rather than later. I know that would be com- competition for you guys, but I think yeah. it'd be good to see more and more work done in this space. Thanks for chatting to us on Einstein to Go Go. Thanks for having me, Shane. See ya. See ya. Folks, that was Dr. Mary Darm, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Communication in Healthcare at the Australian National University. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements and we'll be coming back in just a moment talking to my first live guest in two years from La Trobe University. I'm not even sure I remember how to turn on the microphones, but we'll work it out soon. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. Uh, welcome back, people. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me now, and I do mean in the studio, which is rare because we haven't had a guest in our Triple R studio here for Einstein and Gogo in two years. I think we've interviewed something like 300 and something people in a row uh, online. And finally, we have Dr. Katie Unwin, who is a postdoctoral research fellow in the School of Psychology and Public Health at La Trobe University. Katie, welcome to Triple R. Hi, Dr. Shane. Lovely to be here. It's great to have you in here in the flesh. We've got our HEPA filler roaring in the background. I'm not sure if people can hear that, but it's a very safe place. Um, but it's great to have someone in the studio. Now, you work in the area of autism, which mm. is just its one of the most fascinating spaces. And I think I was trying to think whether we were outside with um, one of Radiotherapy's previous guests, Terry O'Brien, and the three of us were having a, a chat, you know, a neurologist, yourself and myself, a physicist, I didn't have much to offer. Um, but I thought we should have just recorded that and play it because it was <laughs> such a good chat about what's going on. But first of all, let's, let's just sort of pull back a little bit. I think most people have a good understanding or at least a historic understanding of autism. But what's the current sort of version of that? What, how do we think of autism today? Well, I think the way to answer that is that actually a lot of people describe autism in lots of different ways. Mm. So we can talk about autism diagnostically. So, you know, what are what are clinicians looking for when they want to diagnose a child or an adult with autism? And in that respect, we're looking at the diagnostic and statistical manual definition. So social communication difficulties, presence of restricted and repetitive interests and behaviours, and also some sensory differences. Mm-hmm. But then actually we're talking to autistic people themselves and we get a far wider, far broader um, description of what autism is for them. Um, so it's actually a pretty difficult thing to diagnose and uh, define these days. Yeah, interesting. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by how people with autism themselves describe that. What, can you give us a couple of highlights of, of how that differs from you know, the way we otherwise diagnostically talk about autism? Yeah, absolutely. So I think what the important thing to remember is that that um, these things that we hear from autistic people themselves are the actual lived experience of autism, Mm. Um, their day-to-day lives, their individual experiences. Whereas what we see from, um, you know, the diagnostic manual is statistical uh, commonalities across large groups of people. And so we see from autistic individuals themselves describing um, how actually for some of them the social differences that we would describe as deficits through the the diagnostic, the medical system, actually for them are 
not deficits at all. Mm. And the same with my topic, sensory differences. Um, although there are a large group of individuals who really struggle with a lot of sensory differences, uh, some autistic people describe enjoying the sensory wow. differences that they experience. Yeah, that, I mean, that's so fascinating. And, you know, my understanding these days is that we also talk about it as a, as a spectrum as opposed to just, I suppose, what we used to do, which was talk about people up mm. one end of that spectrum. Absolutely. And I would go even further to say these days we're actually not even talking about a spectrum, but we're talking about a spectrum of neurodiversity full stop. Mm. And what that means is basically we all know our brains are different. They're wired differently. And so we're always going to have diversity between people um, in the way they experience the world, engage with the world. And so not only now are we talking about an autism spectrum, but we're talking about a spectrum of a whole range of other things as well, um, all clumbered into this one one word that's so um, on topic at the moment, which is neurodiversity. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because even forgetting about autism for a moment, we're not good as a society at dealing with that on its own. And then if you add autism on top of that, um, you know, you're getting this sort of perfect storm of, of, I suppose, in a way, it's miscommunication around around what, what people need and how they interact. Absolutely that. That is the biggest problem for us at the moment, and particularly in research, because in research, when we're running statistical models, we want to have distinct groups. We want to describe those groups mm. well, and often that includes a certain amount of reductionism. We have to reduce a full and rich experience of a life into um, sheer numbers. And so that's why my belief is that as researchers within the autism field and neurodiversity field as a whole, we really should be doing mixed methods research. So be talking to autistic individuals themselves, finding out about their rich experiences and then combining that with quantitative methods um, that actually help us be able to understand at a more group level what's going on yep. in order to get a full understanding of a particular topic area. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. Now, one of the things that you're working on, of course, is this area of schools and how you know children mm. with autism can interact with schools. And, and I suppose many of us wouldn't have thought about this, but you know, beyond what we're probably seeing in television, but the school environment, like, and and by that I mean smells, sounds, colours, brightness, I guess textures, all of it, isn't necessarily optimised for people who, uh, uh, you know, I, I was almost said suffering from autism, but people who have autism, but are, I suppose suffering from the world not compensating for what their needs are. Absolutely. You've hit upon the most important point there, Dr. Shane. We are not talking about autistic individuals having some real deep problem with sensory mm. issues. Actually, we're talking about them having a difference in the way that they experience the world and the world not being set up for them yep. so you're absolutely right you know we know that autistic children at schools rate really highly um, on being very unhappy very anxious they often underperform academically uh, excluded a lot that's what research has told us mm. so far and we know from other research that that's underpinned by this sensory difference that actually if you can imagine for a second if you experience any small amount of sound as a loud booming drum or a pneumatic drill, so let's say you're in a classroom and your kids beside you are all chatting to themselves mm. and you have to do a maths test, well, imagine that that chatting sounds like clashing cymbals, booming drum, like it can do in um, autism. Well, imagine trying to do that maths test. Yeah. Uh, it would <laughs> just be almost impossible to concentrate. And so that really helps us to understand why it is that these kids are reporting such difficulty at school. 
Yeah, it's it's phenomenal to me too that they they're managing as well as they are, which means you know, many of them are highly adaptive and they're actually they're learning to deal with some of those environmental issues. I mean, we we all have environmental complaints, mm. you know, like all of us in general. You know, it's it's too hot. I don't like sure. that. I mean, I'm, I'm not a good one for concentrating when I'm too hot. I'd, I'd much <laughs> rather be freezing my butt off in the snow if I was studying for an exam than I would sweltering somewhere in forty uh, degree yeah, heat. Absolutely. That's just me. We all but we all have things that we we can cope better with some things and worse with others but in the case of autism it's like i suppose everything is dialed up yeah um so all of those issues are dialed up to the point where i was thinking before at at what temperature do i stop functioning at at Mm. what temperature can i just not handle it anymore but then i don't just have one of those things going on i have 10 of them absolutely Uh, is that is that a good sort of way of thinking about it Absolutely. I, you know, I think the really important thing that you've mentioned there is that um, these individuals with autism seem to be incredibly good at adapting. Um, and actually, their parents themselves are also really good at adapting. But often we understand their, their behaviour that might come out from mm. not being able to concentrate because of a sensory difference or anger or some other kind of externalising behaviour. We take that as naughtiness. And that is not naughtiness. Yeah. And I think something that's really interesting about sensory difference in autism is that it's not just about um, heightening the sense of you know sound or light uh, or texture but actually for some autistic individuals they need more stimulation than what they're receiving or they need it in a particular way Um, and so they might be sitting in a classroom just desperately in need of some kind of stimulation that they're not able to receive and that can also lead to behavioral difficulties and difficulties um, you know functioning Focusing, all of the things we know are so important at school. Yeah, sorry, I just had this flashback to the what was it the the 2018 fidget spinner explosion, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think that was with um, kids for ADHD. I think mm. where that came out of, but it exploded because all kids kind of needed something of that type. So, in terms of the average classroom, though, I mean, what what could we do? Because it sounds like there's such a bespoke requirement there mm. for individuals because everyone is a bit different in what their needs are. Absolutely. Well, the first thing to say is that that's what I hope I'm going to find out. Okay. That's what I'm going to do. So watch yeah. this space. But I believe really, really strongly that we need to first objectively measure exactly what's going on in a classroom in order to be able to provide really good indication of what modifications might be useful. And then we can test the modifications to see if they are useful. Mm. So what this would mean is going into a classroom using specialised, calibrated equipment to measure things like reverberation, light, sound quality. And from that, after measuring how the autistic individuals are engaging in that classroom in that way, provide some uh, some ideas of modification and then measuring that actual modification to really be able to answer your question uh, properly with science because mm. at the moment what happens unfortunately is it's a bit of a stab in the dark yep. people just think oh well i'll just close the blinds and everything will be fine well that doesn't seem to be working. Instead, we really need to be doing work in the classrooms at the basic level before we can provide proper interventions. Yeah, interesting. Now, I have some vague recollection that certain supermarkets were having an hour a week or Mm. something where families with autistic children could go and the lights, you know, I mean, to be honest, those fluoro lights are pretty nasty for all of us, right? But but like I can imagine, you know, really bad for, for anyone who has any sort of sensory sort of overload scenario going on. And do, do we know whether that was effective? Were the supermarkets just empty? 
Or the, or the people with autistic kids actually turn up at those times and make use of them. Do we have any idea of what went on there? Well, people seem to be saying that that was useful. And mm. certainly from a theoretical point of view, that would be a really, really good thing to do. Mm. Um, making things more accessible is always going to be good. And I think a point I really want to pick up here is that, as you suggested... Actually, being in those supermarkets with the lights dimmed and no music on actually sounds like a really pleasant experience for everyone. Yeah. And so what you're, what you're really getting at here is this idea of universal design, which is yeah. this big thing coming out at the moment. We should stop designing spaces that are just good for some people and instead think about the broad spectrum of perception and sensory differences and make them good for everyone. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting you say that because there's, there's a part of me that believes in sort of little bits of conspiracy around this and and the idea that the the more those lights are blaring the more crap i'm having to listen to the less you know cognitive i am of what i'm buying and i'll buy a whole lot of crap that i otherwise don't want i think there is something in that and that's probably part of it because wouldn't it be nice if it was a nice you know relatively dimly lit environment in your supermarket there were nature sounds all about a stream (laughs) running through aisle four yeah i mean we we could set up an environment to make all of this very very comfortable for all of us i think something tells me they're not going to do that now the the other the other sort of side to your research of course is this issue of diagnosis Mm -hmm. and my understanding correct me if i'm wrong here but early diagnosis is super important um, with autism so that the right sort of interventions can be put into place that, that helps kids early on yeah That's absolutely right, Shane. We're seeing that come out pretty consistently in research. The earlier we can diagnose autism, the earlier we can provide some supports that seem to be far more beneficial than if we provide those supports later on in life at 12 years, 15 years, 18 years. And we think that's because of this underlying thing called neuroplasticity. The idea being that our brains change when we're very, very young. They change all throughout our lives, really up until about Mm. 25. Um, So unfortunately for you and I, I think that those... Those brain stuck. changes have stopped now. <laughs> yeah. But for those those kids, um, really, really young children in particular have quite a lot of brain changes going on um, as their neuronal networks are wiring and rewiring in different ways. And that's why we think it's so important to intervene early, to provide those supports early. So actually their brains can be changing and that can lead to actual uh, proper change later on in life mm. um, as opposed to just, yeah, providing something later on, which might be a little bit helpful, but isn't going to maybe address the underlying issue. Yeah. I read a, I read a paper a few years back that said that, you know, all the people like myself can can still have, you know, neuroplasticity mm-hmm. in your camera. So I'm, I've yep. got hope. Yep, absolutely. I haven't, seen, hope. haven't yep. seen it in myself, yep. but I've got hope. I've got hope. <laughs> now, in, in, so if we know this and we know how important it is, I mean, what do we need to do diagnostically? Because I know there's, there's a standard sort of set of diagnostic mm. principles, isn't there? And that's around social behaviour, I assume. Absolutely, yeah. So the way that we often diagnose autism is predominantly based on social symptoms. Mm. Um, and so there's lots of reasons behind that. Um, mainly the important thing that that's what the diagnostic manual seems to say is most important – But interestingly, people are starting to talk about how sensory differences presented very early on in life seem to be coming out and be more obvious early on than these social differences. So social differences, we can start to see it sort of 12 months, but actually some work has suggested that we might be able to see sensory differences at six to nine months. Wow. And that really is the, the crux of what I'm hoping to try and do, is to try and harness those symptoms and try and make a diagnostic tool that might be able to support us diagnosing those individuals earlier 
Mm. Um, and maybe even combining that tool with social symptoms a bit later and improving accuracy of diagnosis, which we know is also a really important thing. So that, I mean, that's fascinating to, to me because we're, we're talking about babies at that mm. point. We're not talking about five-year-olds who can, you know, write their name and so forth. Absolutely. Um, we're talking about babies. So what would that look like in practice? Is that their, their, their physical responses to sound or, or I mean, what, how would that play out? How would parents notice that? Absolutely. So that's actually what we're trying to work out at the moment is what are the key things that we can be looking for? The research that's come out so far seems to suggest that things like excessive mouthing seem to be uh, differentiating autistic individuals from non-autistic individuals, these very young ages. Mm. But we can look at any range of other things because as I'm sure you know, Dr. Sean, and all of our listeners... The whole world is sensory and we are constantly engaging in this sensory world and producing behaviours in response to what we're receiving. And so all we need to do, (laughs) famous last words, Mm. is try and find out those really small differences between non-autistic individuals and autistic individuals in the way they're responding to sensory differences very, very early on in order to be able to find a, a diagnostic, a few items, hopefully, that'll help us help us understand it. So some of the things that it might be was how a child, very, very young child, engages with an object. So are they putting it in their mouth? Are they putting it to their nose? Are they putting it to their ear? Mm. Are they peering at it in an unusual angle? All things like that seem to be really good candidates for something that might be useful to be able to diagnose uh, autism. Yeah, I mean, and these things to me sound like the sort of things you could get done in routine checkups with GPs as kids are coming through and get their getting their immunizations or getting mm. weighed or you know all the things that you know there's that little wedge that you draw and see where your kid is in terms of height and everything and it all starts off when the baby's but you, you know that that all of that material is collected anyway exactly. so and this is we're not talking about blood tests we're not talking about invasive processes we're talking about just seeing how they interact with the world around them absolutely and you know associate professor Josie Barbaro from our research center the Olga Tennyson Autism Research mm. Center at La Trobe she has very successfully done this with social symptoms so what what she's done is she's got a checklist of symptoms which seem to differentiate autistic individuals from non-autistic individuals at a very young age, about 12 months and above. And she's trained maternal child health nurses in Victoria to actually be administering and checking for each of these things. And she has incredible rates of pickup of autism. And these kids are then able to get a full diagnosis. They're then able to get some um, interventions. And um, it's really a very, very exciting place to be right now. Well, it's fascinating stuff. Dr. Katie Unwin, thanks so much for being our guest today on Einstein and Gogo. I'm going to make you sit around till the end of thanks. the show. But oh, look, pleasure. it's great talking to you and look, interesting stuff. I think this is an area where I'm seeing just over the last 10 years, the changes in the way we approach autism have been phenomenal. Absolutely. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to benefit as a result. Folks, we're going to take a short break for some station announcements and we'll be back to say goodbye in just a few moments. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Yeah, we are here at Triple R, folks. Uh, just uh, we finished the interview, but Katie's still in the studio with me. It, you're my first guest back after the, <laughs> you know. I mean, everyone's assuming the pandemic's over. It's not bloody over, folks. No, it's still, you know, wear, wear a goddamn mask when you're indoors if possible. But um, it's it's great having someone in the studio. It's so much Thanks. different. We don't have to worry about the sound quality. We don't yeah. have to worry about the connectivity. It's just nice to have people oh, back Oh, it's in. been great. Thanks so much for having me in. No, it's been a great experience to see how it all works. And yes, Dr. Shane works very, very hard, um, pressing lots of different buttons. Looks very proficient. <laughs> <laughs> I gave her $5 to say that. I put my feet up during the breaks and, and do absolutely nothing. No, it's, um, it's well, actually, I'm pushing a, pushing a lot more buttons when I have people online than I would otherwise when people are just oh, in the studio. 
So there's a lot more to do. But look, it's been great having you in, and Thanks. we're going to enjoy having guests back in the studio, in particular our PhD students that we get in because Super. often this is their first experience with media. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, I think we're a bit kinder than, than some media outlets. <laughs> um, we take good care of people. So that's something that, you know, we take very seriously. But great having you in, Katie. Thanks, oh, thanks for having thanks me. Thanks for being part super. of the show. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. And a huge thank you to both Mary Darm and Tim Sendon and also Katie Unland for being our guest today on the show. We'll be back uh, hopefully with a bit, uh, bit more of a bigger crew next week than just myself, but um, hope you've enjoyed the show anyway. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Gogo. Remember, science is everywhere. And have a great Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.